Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. It's a typical Thursday this past January, around lunchtime. Sherry Bishop is at home. I was at the kitchen sink cutting up vegetables for a salad. Sherry lives in Mountain Home Park, a mobile home community in Brattleboro, about four miles from downtown. And I looked out and I saw this brown water. Brown water that's filling Sherry's lawn fast. Sherry told this story to my colleague Bela Metzger. Here's Bela. The water is coming from the Whetstone Brook. It's not that close to Sherry's place. It's on the other side of the park. But Sherry's lot is one of the lowest in the area. So by the time she notices the water, it's already pooling in her yard and around her home. Sherry and her son's cars are parked out front, and she can see that the floodwaters are going to reach them. So I quick grab my keys to the car, move one car. In her rush, she forgets the keys to the other car. So she heads back to the house. I was just wading through water, and it was cold. My feet were soaked. I didn't have any boots that were enough for the water. It was over my boots. Remember, this is January. There's ice and debris floating in the cold water, and who knows what else. Sherry gets back to her house, grabs the car keys, and heads back out into the water. Got the car out of there just as it was going over the doors. With both cars parked safely above the waterline, Sherry and her husband wait. Dozens of people out of their homes in Brattleboro. The fire department says it's because an ice jam formed. From the temperatures we saw today, the heavy rains. These floodwaters continue to rise. This flood was caused by an ice jam. Temperatures in Brattleboro had risen quickly, from sub-zero to the upper 40s. And three inches of rain had fallen. This had caused thick ice on the Whetstone Brook to melt, break up, and hurtle downstream eventually getting stuck and creating a dam. The next day, crews carefully break up the ice and the water recedes. But this presents a new problem. My husband had taken pictures from our deck. Sherry shows me pictures that her husband took right after the flood. It's a muddy mess. Uh, (laughs) It's just awful. Her whole yard is covered in a thick, dark sludge. In the pictures, the bottom portion of her mobile home, what's called the skirting, is just caked in mud. Did it cause damage to the bottom of your house there? I haven't really looked under it. Once it warms up and dries out, we'll open it all up and he'll hose it down and clean it up so you don't have the stink and the mold and all that stuff. Sherry has lived here for 35 years, and over the last decade, she's gotten a crash course in how to deal with flooding. We had our first flood... April Fool's Day, I think it was, in 2005. And then in 2006, we got flooded again. And then we got Irene. And then it seems like since Irene, every time there's a lot of water, we get flooded each time. Do you feel like there's been more flooding since Irene? I think so. It's warmer, more flooding. The rain is coming more our way. We're getting more of the rain. According to the latest National Climate Assessment, 
Average annual precipitation in Vermont has increased nearly six inches since the early 20th century. Extreme rainfall events are also projected to become more extreme and more frequent. And then there are ice jams, which is what Sherry experienced in January. Our state hazard mitigation plan says they're happening more, too, as we get less snow in the winter and more rain. And all of this means more flooding for many Vermonters. This month on the podcast, we meet a few of them. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism project. I'm Angela Evansee, and this is Jack. My name is Jack Haskell, and I live in Brattleboro, Vermont. Jack is this month's winning question asker. If you're not familiar with how our show works, we answer questions about Vermont that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. And my question is, how is climate change affecting Vermont right now? We know climate change is happening. We know the predictions are dire and that there are urgent conversations to be had about policy. But to answer Jack's question, we're going to stay focused on the present. What is happening right now? And yeah, things are pretty wet. People realize that things are different now. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. question is, what does climate change look like in Vermont right now? How is it affecting Vermont right now? We're getting a lot more water. Lauren Oates is the State Hazard Mitigation Officer with Vermont Emergency Management. So what you'll hear on the street is called a 100-year event, or the 1% annual chance flood, is actually occurring more like every 1 in 10 years. Lauren and I are standing in the middle of Queechee Village, a spot that got hit hard by Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. If you lived in Vermont during Irene, it's probably the first thing you think of when you hear the word flooding. If Irene was before your time, you might look it up. It caused more than $700 million in damage. But here's the thing. There have been a lot of floods since then. Well, as far as FEMA is concerned, a FEMA-declared disaster, we're averaging two a year in Vermont, a little more than half of which are flood-related, the other snow, ice, wind, since Irene. Lauren's office published the 2018 State Hazard Mitigation Plan. Subtitle, Making Vermont Safer and More Resilient in the Face of Climate Change and Natural Disasters. And according to that plan, the number one and number two most significant natural hazards in Vermont are both flooding. Two different kinds of flooding, called fluvial erosion and inundation flooding. Yeah, the easiest way to understand it is inundation is a vertical change in the water, so up and down, and fluvial erosion is a side-to-side movement where the river just charts a new course entirely. We'll get back to Lauren later in the episode, because she's also part of the answer to how climate change is impacting Vermont right now. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's meet our question asker, Jack. 
Bela, you talked to Jack this month. Why did he ask this question? So Jack didn't come up with this question randomly. He's a graduate student at the School for International Training in Brattleboro. And you'll never guess his focus. I am studying climate change education. Surprise, surprise. Jack has a background in education. He taught in Uganda for a couple years. And now he's working on his graduate thesis about climate change education. You guys are helping me to do my my graduate school work, so thank you. (laughs) So he knows a lot about this topic already, but he's got a specific interest. The right now piece is what's important to me. Jack says conversations about climate change are often pretty abstract. Ice caps, polar bears, different megafauna that are potentially going extinct. All those areas interest Jack, But he's not sure they really get people to pay attention to climate change. Or at least it doesn't seem to get people to act. But ever the good educator, Jack has a thought about what does grab people's attention. I think it would be good for people to hear how it's affecting people. We think Jack has a great angle here. Because we are actually living in an era where people have an outsized influence. Right. The the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene. Going super big picture for a minute here, the Anthropocene is the name of the geological age that we're in. It is the so-called age of humans, right? And it acknowledges the massive influence that human activities, human decisions have in, uh, at this point, determining, you know, the composition of the oceans, the composition of the atmospheres. By the way, this is Dan Suarez. I'm a new assistant prof in environmental studies at Middlebury College. Dan says the Anthropocene and climate change, which is caused by people, are closely linked. Uh, no, well, I mean, climate change uh, is one of the most uh, important and emblematic expressions of this, you know, notion of the Anthropocene. At the same time, Dan points out that conversations about climate change sometimes lack nuance about demographics, different groups of people. Like, you often hear that we are causing climate change, but we aren't all experiencing the same thing. Some segments of that we are rather insulated, um, at least in the short term, from some of these fire and brimstone manifestations that are again going to grow more uh, extreme as time goes on. And some folks are already experiencing them and are disproportionately impacted by them. Our question asker, Jack, is aware of this. Climate change has the tendency to affect people living in poverty and um, communities of color more so than other groups. This is what's known as environmental justice. The idea that some people are affected more than others by environmental hazards and catastrophes. Here's Dan Suarez again. You think of disproportionate vulnerabilities to extreme weather events. You think of what happened in Hurricane Katrina, uh, more recently in Puerto Rico, right? Uh, There are really uneven abilities to respond. And as climate change proceeds and gets more intense, these disparities are, are expected to worsen. And this is not just happening in faraway places. At the same time that we can see this stuff playing out at a global level, right, these displacements of people, that is also playing out in the U.S. and I would suspect playing out in Vermont. In central Vermont, in the town of Brandon, I meet Stacy and Michael Lee. She's a puppy. She gets a little excited, so watch her. They live on Newton Road, which cuts through an open field at the base of the Green Mountain National Forest. Also at home, 
two labs, a golden retriever, and two Persian cats that belong to their daughter. So everyone gets along? Oh, yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. These guys have been through floods. They've been through everything. They've been carried out in little cat cat backpacks. Yeah, my daughter has cat carriers, but they're backpacks. And the last time we flooded, the dogs swam out, and we had the cats on our back in the backpacks. Wow. That's amazing. Stacy says the last time we flooded because it's happened more than once. The Neshebe River runs a few hundred feet behind the Lee's White Ranch. And in recent years, it's gotten destructive. The people that lived here prior to us never had a problem with the river. Like, they used to maintain it and dredge it out, and there, w- there was never an issue. And when Tropical Storm Irene happened, um, it was pretty devastating. Irene did over $40,000 in damage to the Lee's house, which their flood insurance paid. And after all their repairs, they thought they were in good shape. You know, when we reset the furnace, we, we yeah. set it 18 inches higher than it was before. Yeah. Um, when we, we poured the floor, we poured provisions for sump pumps. Fast forward to July 1, 2017. Um, it happened really quickly, and, like, the river was fine, and then all of a sudden it wasn't fine. And what happened was, is it actually, it shot across into the meadow across the road and come down and hit this, this ridge here and then hit us right in the front door. Um, so yeah, it, 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 was, it was all the way around us. More than three inches of rain fell that weekend onto soil that was already saturated from previous rain. This was a storm that hit some parts of the state and even some of the Lee's neighbors worse than Irene. But for Stacy and Mike... It wasn't as bad. We were able to keep the water out of the basement. Um, well, so to speak, so. 18 inches or so. It, 18 inches seems like so much water, but for you guys, compared to what you went through with Irene, oh, yeah. it seems like, oh, no big deal, 18 inches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we, uh, we had uh, two uh, two-and-a-half-inch pumps going full-time. Um, I think if it wasn't for those pumps, we, we'd have been right to the floorboards again. But we... Um, we, we fought, you know, we, we fought, we, everybody fights. And um, I wouldn't quite say we won, but I would say that... The river has taught us a lot. Yeah. It's taught us a lot, it's taught us how to survive. I once would, lo- I would love to drive down this street and, and just not look at that river every day and say, oh, I hope, I hope they didn't move, or I hope that tree doesn't fall in. And, and you know, it's, it's a way of thinking, it's a... You know, you, you, it changed us, I think. It's actually really hard to get the Lees to tell me the story of the July 2017 storm because they keep blending it with the story of Irene. It's like their memories are water damaged. It's, it's just, um, it's draining. It's absolutely draining. And you look back at your house and you're like, you know, the, everything that you've worked so hard for just seems so minute at the time because water just is taking over. When Stacy says the water is taking over, it's not hyperbole. Heavy precipitation events in the Northeast have increased. They're up by more than 50% since the late 1950s. Regardless of if you define extreme events as greater than one inch, two inches, three inches, four inches, the answer is yes to all of them. That's Leslie Ann Dupini-Giroux. She's Vermont's state climatologist, 
and the lead author of the Northeast chapter of the latest National Climate Assessment, a congressionally mandated report on climate change. She also teaches at UVM. Leslie Ann says extreme precipitation events here in Vermont have become even more frequent in recent years. There's been an uptick post-2005. Part of this increase is what some will call a warmer world. Warmer air temperatures cause more evaporation, which means more water vapor in the atmosphere. This causes more frequent and intense precipitation. Here in Vermont, there's another reason for extreme weather. We sit at the center of a bullseye of various storm systems. We get storm systems that either come up the eastern seaboard and dump on us, or we get systems that backtrack across the Atlantic and then dump on us. We have the ones that come across the Canadian prairies. We have the ones that come up from Colorado. We have the ones that come from the Gulf. These extreme weather events can contribute to a higher risk of flooding, according to the National Climate Assessment. But there's an important distinction here, and Leslie Ann is really clear about this. Precipitation does not necessarily equal flooding. Sometimes it plays a part, but not always. Leslie Ann says you really have to look at each flood like a puzzle, with lots of different pieces making the water rise. When the river overtops its banks and and spills onto the floodplain, that's one piece of the puzzle. But there are other puzzle pieces too, like the type of soil. How well does it drain? How much moisture is in it already? How steep are the riverbanks? And then there's the landscape and how it's being used. All of those factors combine to produce a disastrous effect. I think what people tend to forget is flooding is a a natural uh, process and it gets exacerbated by lots of development within floodplains and or development in the headwaters. This is Frank McGilligan. He's a professor of geography at Dartmouth College. And my specialty is I am a fluvial geomorphologist. So in layman's terms, can we say that you are an expert in flooding? Uh, In layperson's terms, yes. I would say that I am uh, an expert in flooding. Uh, I've been working on floods since my uh, graduate school days. Frank points out that more rain isn't the only thing causing more intense floods. Our development patterns do, too. And then there's topography. Are there characteristics of Vermont's landscape that make us particularly vulnerable to flooding? Uh, That's a great question, and the answer to that is uh, most definitely yes, especially along the eastern flank of the Green Mountains. Uh, Most of the tributary systems along uh, eastern Vermont uh, tend to be very, what we would call, confined valleys. Narrow valleys, where there are also roads. The uh, rivers have lost a lot of uh, what I would call accommodation space, where they have the ability uh, to move and store uh, water. So you already have very narrow valleys. You have roads along uh, these uh, river systems in general. um, And there's really nowhere for the water to go except up and out of the river. Frank, like many scientists, including Leslie Ann, the state climatologist, is careful about over-attributing severe weather to climate change. How much is actually normal? There's a new field of science that looks to answer this question. It's called attribution science. It's really trying to better nail down what percent or how much of a given storm can we attribute to climate change. That being said, Frank is well aware of our intensifying precip events. The extreme of the extremes. Particularly these storms called microbursts. Sometimes they come without much warning. These high-intensity, short-duration events. The July 2017 storm that hit Mike and Stacy Lee and Brandon, that was a microburst. And in fact, a lot of friends of mine in the science community 
uh, would say they don't like the term the new normal because really what it is, it's the new abnormal. Frank studies how rivers respond to floods, but he inevitably observes how people respond too. People realize that things are different now, and people realize that uh, the river seems to be flooding more often or flooding at different times of the year. Many of these, especially in Vermont, a lot of these families have lived there for generations. And, you know, they might not know the science of hydrology as well as I do, but they certainly know that river uh, better than I do. I'm back at Mountain Home Park in Brattleboro, where we met Sherry Bishop at the beginning of this episode. Since our question asker, Jack, also lives in Brattleboro, he joins me for some interviews. Are you Jeff? Yes, I am. Hi, I'm Bela. Hi, Bela. Jack. A Jack. Jack and I meet a resident named Jeff Waite. The Halliday Brook runs through his backyard. It was part of the big ice jam flood back in January. Jeff's property is picturesque, except for the piles of ice and dirt scattered across his lawn. Even now, two months later. My kids keep saying, Dad, move, 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 move. <laughs> so. What keeps you here? I don't know. Just family, I guess. I've been here like 36, 37 years, and I'm ready to die, so I don't want to do anything else. (laughs) I'm 66 years old, and I still try to keep up what I can. A little young to die. (laughs) Are you from here originally, around the area? Yeah, Yeah, I've been here all my life, so. Jeff is semi-retired. When this last flood hit, he was napping. Somebody was knocking at the door, and I didn't know what was going on. So I happened to come out, and this was all water and ice, and they had a bucket loader here trying to uh, get me out of here. And then I had to go get my three cats. Jeff was out of his house for a week, but thankfully, no water got in. He has flood insurance, and he's gotten a few checks to replace the insulation that was damaged under his home. When it rains a lot, he keeps a close eye on the brook. But for now, he wants to stay. I didn't think this brook would hold that much water, but it did. When it comes to who is most impacted by flooding in Vermont right now, proximity to water matters. And so does what kind of structure you live in. A 2012 UVM study found that 12% of mobile home parks are located in flood hazard areas. That's three times the share of single-family homes. Mountain Home Park is the largest mobile home park in the state. It's part of a cooperative called TriPark that includes two other parks nearby. About 8% of Brattleboro residents live in this area. Many of them have been here for decades. Mountain Home Park was developed in the 1950s, before flood maps existed. By the time FEMA developed flood maps in the 70s, it was clear that many properties were built in flood hazard areas, both in flood plains, where water accumulates, and in what's known as floodways, places where water can flow at a pretty decent velocity. Many of the homes in these areas were swept completely away during Irene. For some of the people who still live here, Irene seems to have made the subsequent flooding worse. I hope it's not too bright. You know, when they say when you want to sell something, not to you keep neutral. That's Sherry Bishop again. Her home is one of more than 60 units in the park that's in a flood hazard area. She's one of the park's most long-standing residents. She grew up here. But unlike her neighbor, Jeff, she feels like she might have to leave. I can't keep going through this emotionally. So we're looking into whatever is out there right now. 
That's why she's painting her living room baby blue. You know, if it looks clean and neat, people are more apt to buy. Can you sell this home? I can sell it on the lot, but what are you going to get when it's being flooded on a regular basis? I don't see that my house is still worth that much because nobody wants to pay that. This is a catch-22 for many Mountain Home Park residents who live in floodplains. Who will buy their properties? And anyway, where would they go? It's in everybody's interest to work with some sense of urgency to relocate people to safer locations in the park or or elsewhere. Sue Fillion is Brattleboro's planning director. She's working with the park on what's being called the master plan, to find people homes on dry land. Support could include state and federal funds. There's no solid plan yet, though a deadline of August has been set. But there's another issue. We're realizing that if miraculously we could move all these people overnight, we would lose the income from that and all the other people would be in danger of losing their homes because they wouldn't be able to pay the overhead to keep the park alive. That's Kay Curtis, the park's board president. Since Mountain Home is cooperatively owned, it relies on residents' fees. If dozens of people leave, the financial viability of the entire park could be threatened, putting all the residents at risk of losing their homes, whether they live in a floodplain or not. And there are other reasons residents in the floodplains want to stay. Here's Sherry again. I don't really want to start over. (laughs) I want to finish up cleaning up my house and stay here, really. The town can't force Sherry to move. But the waters still might. There is another option for Sherry and her neighbors in Mountain Home, though it would be complicated. To explain, we've got to give some background. You hear the river in the background a little bit? Since Irene, the state has been facilitating buyouts of flood-damaged and flood-prone structures so they can be demolished. The funding comes from FEMA and HUD and the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board. So we're standing in Creechy Village uh, next to the Simon Pierce restaurant and next to the covered bridge on the site of a, of a buyout. So this, we would literally be standing inside a building if that building was still here. I meet the people who have been leading this effort, which is in the process of being more formally recognized as the statewide buyout and conservation program. I'm Lauren Oates, State Hazard Mitigation Officer with Vermont Emergency Management. We met Lauren earlier in the episode. And I'm Kevin Geiger, the Senior Planner with the Two Rivers Ottaquichi Regional Commission. It's the first day of spring, and snowmelt is running down a waterfall below us. This is where the Ottaquichi River runs through the village. And Kevin says that during Irene, the water here came up 30 feet. At the time, the building that was in this spot housed a real estate office. And now it's... uh kind of a, a multi-tiered park. Across the river from us are the sites of two other buyouts, two homes that were starting to slide down the steep bank. Correct. And there were a few more in Hartford, actually, yes. that we purchased. Not but right, right here, here this yeah. three. Yeah. We've gotten 150 structures out of floodplains, but we've got quite a ways to go still. What? And when you say quite a ways to go, like how many structures do you have in your mind that need to be dealt with. There are literally thousands in the state. FEMA has changed the rules a little bit, which helps us do some things. So now if you're able to identify a structure that was you know, teetering on the edge, you don't have to lose all your mother's antiques and everything. We could actually work with a town and buy it out ahead of time. 
which makes it so much more pleasant. Buyouts in mobile home parks get more complicated because homeowners don't typically own the land that their homes sit on. Or, like at Mountain Home in Brattleboro, the land is cooperatively owned. But Lauren Oates says that wouldn't preempt a buyout. And she and Kevin say they're trying to be more proactive with these purchases. They're also looking to help towns acquire undeveloped lots and conserve that empty land as floodplain. Kevin and Lauren are also aware that buyouts can have a negative impact by diminishing the affordable housing in some communities. Stockbridge, where I think 19 homes were bought out, uh, most of them very small kind of A-frames, some of which were seasonal, some of which were permanent, that took a chunk of affordable housing off of the market in that town that we don't have an easy replacement for. So now that we're in the post-Irene somewhat peacetime, but expecting again the next Irene or worse, uh, we do need to plan smarter and figure out, like Kevin said, in the absence of flooding, affordable housing in Vermont's already an issue and and trying to make sure that we're not making it worse. This calm before the next big storm is a good time to think about those bigger questions because there will be a next big storm. The way I try to encapsulate that is I I say, Irene wasn't the movie, it was the trailer. You know, the movie's still to come. And so it's many more Irenes in the future, potentially on grander scales. So we need to be ready for that and and get our minds around that. And for people who have gotten their minds around it, either because they've had flood damage since Irene, or they know they're likely to in the future, it's a pretty heavy burden. Yeah, the emotional, psychological component of flooding in Vermont cannot be understated. I said at the beginning of this that we're expecting more and more rain, less snow. There's less space for it to be um, absorbed because of more development all across Vermont, all across New England. And those people need some sort of peace of mind. It is not a fun thing to live in a floodplain in Vermont. I wish there was a support group. You know, people could get together and and say, yeah, I I was where you were at, and and there is hope. Because I I think that the the physical damage is almost nowhere near as bad as the mental damage. This is Mike Lee, who we met earlier in Brandon, who has been flooded out twice. Uh, the, 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 The feelings that, you know... I've cracked all my teeth, uh, you know, just driving home a day, you, you, you feel your jaw tighten up and, and, and it's because you, you've worked your whole life and all of a sudden you don't know where you're at. Mike and his wife Stacy are among five families in town who are in the middle of the buyout process. They made the decision shortly after the July 1 storm in 2017, though it wasn't an easy choice. They've lived here for 24 years. We didn't know whether to trust FEMA. We didn't, you know, we're Vermonters. We we, we survive. We don't usually get a helping hand. One minute we're happy to move forward and, like, start a new life and what we call home. And, and then the next minute we're crying our eyes out because, like, we've, this has been our home. And so it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. The buyout process takes a long time. The Lees are more than two years in, and they're just about to find out how much they can get for their one-story ranch. It's tough to rip off a Band-Aid slow. The appraisal will be fair market value. It won't take flooding into account. But Mike says he's terrified the number will come in low. 
when when this house was up and going and we had no problems with the river I, I, I felt like I was at top of the world I, I we both have careers um, you know we, we work hard um, and all of a sudden I became very vulnerable you know we just wanted to be fair Stacy and Mike have their eye on a house in Pittsford they both work in Rutland Mike is a technician and Stacy is a registered nurse and they wouldn't mind the shorter commute it definitely could be worse. We do have some money set aside if we absolutely need to use it. Um, we're going to try not to do that. With so much uncertainty, Stacy and Mike are trying hard to stay positive. And they say as hard as it is to leave Newton Road, they're grateful they've got a path out. They say they're more worried about their neighbors. You know, we're, we're not a uh, fancy street by any means. There's a number of homes up through here that are that are uh, older mobile homes, and it works fine for these people. You know, they, they've done updates, but unfortunately, they don't they don't list well. Uh, so, you know, when you have something that works, and then you find out that it, it's working, but it has no value, and you have to go, and I'm afraid for them. The Lees have a lot of friends around here. They like to ride motorcycles with. Stacy says she wants to maintain those relationships. And Mike says he'll always have a relationship with this land, even if he can't live here. Oh, definitely. I, I can't. I can't. This, this is 24 years of, of my life here. I, I, have, I, I hunt in my backyard. I, I fish in my backyard. I, I don't, this, this place is my friend. I, I don't think I could stay away from my friend. I said to her the other day, I, I, was, I was horrified. All of a sudden I realized that what happens if we buy this next home and I'm there a week and all of a sudden I want to go home. It's, it's scary. so much for listening to the show this month. Bela Metzger reported this episode with me. If you have a question about Vermont you want us to answer, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also vote on the one you want us to answer next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. If you're a fan of our work, there are two things you can do. Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and or make a gift to VPR at bravelittlestate.org slash donate. Our editor is Lynn McRae and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Cosgrove. We have engineering support from Chris Albertine and digital support from Meg Malone. Special thanks this month to William Hodgman, Christine Hart, Bill Shepelik, Dave Atherton, and Tom Donahue. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month with a question about Vermont's writers and poets. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.